0: From the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby.
1: We are live with a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. Welcome to you wherever you may be. Whether it is on a long, lonesome highway east of Omaha, or some other oblique music reference. Rob, where might someone be if they were living a song right now? Pascagoula. Pascagoula. Or on a. Uh, sitting on a corner. What's that one? Fuck, what is that? Sitting on a corner. No, there's a lot to go on. Two streets on the street of a oh, fucking hell. What is that fucking song? And then there's that other one. And then that one. You know. Uh, oh, that one. You know yeah, those. Yeah, yeah. You are here on the lightning round of the badass counseling show. I am Sven Erlinson. Yes, my parents had a sense of humor uh, and gave me that one. Or I gave mom a lot of pain during childbirth. She thought, "Oh, I'll name this one Sven as a payback." Um, and uh, I'm also joined by KC over there in the booth, looking just as KC as ever. And I have Rob the Rocket sitting next to me. Rob, here what's you. the good word, my man?
0: I'm just here to
1: help. I am your sidekick. Well, uh, you kicked me in the ass and at the right times. Let me ask you, Rob, yeah. what music line has been... Just tinkering around in the back of your head lately. Not necessarily an earworm. Or what music line do you wrestle with sometimes? Or brings meaning to you? I'm the hoochie coochie man. Everybody knows I'm here. Oh, I like that one. I'm reminded of. I sometimes think about, and it's an inspiration to me in my writing and some other things. There's a, just just tiny, almost a throwaway line. Uh, from the old, uh, back when uh, Chicago was doing its heaviest rock, you know, the group Chicago back in the 70s, anti-war shit and all that. And one of their lines of, it was either in dialogue or dialogue one and two or question 67 and 60. I think it was dialogue or in the country. And he says, the power of a thousand new ideas. And I think about that. The power of a thousand new ideas. Uh, a buddy, go ahead, Rob. More profound than uh, what I said. <laughs> no, yes. I like hoochie-coochie, man. And sometimes for me, it's like rock and roll hoochie-coo, all right? Like fucking let's rock and roll. Uh, but I, I like that idea that we're constantly reinventing things, that nothing is, nothing stays as it is. A buddy of mine um, back in the day wrote a piece of music uh, that became in that particular sector, he wrote it in the, in the field, you know, I'm a former clergyman, he wrote it in the field of um, religious music, but it was a Christmas song and it was actually became so popular, it was performed for the Pope at midnight mass in the Vatican and uh, the song is called Night of Silence and uh, Daniel, the, the author of that song and it's, you know, it's become global and this was, you know, fucking 30 years ago, whatever, but he said, you know, anything we create, it's like we throw it out there as a boomerang and it comes back to us but it always comes back sort of different and or if we put it out there we put ourselves out there and then somebody else takes that and runs with it in a new direction and uh, maybe adjust it or tweaks it or bends it or folds it and it becomes better or it meets a different audience. So that's why, you know, I get a lot of therapists coming to me and, and clergy and uh, psychiatrists and, and, you know, academics in, in different fields, helping fields. And they say, oh, Sven, you know, I'm, you know, I'm inspired by what you do, or I like what you say on this or that thought. Um, thank you for what you do. And I say, well, you know, anything that I put out there, you're going to make even better. Because you're going to apply it to a sector, to a field, based on tying it in, looping it in with your experiences and your knowledges, and you're going to improve on it and augment it. And so we're all just sort of in this game of life, improving what was given to us and making it better and hopefully making the world a better place. You know, as my parents used to say, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And I, and I like that. All right, Uh, so we haven't actually answered a question yet, so I guess we should do what we came here for. Rob, um, that question you had, let's wait on that one. I know you had it queued up. I'm going to just take one here from a reader first or a a watcher, reader, watcher something first. Uh, Someone asked the question, have you heard of the book Trauma Bonding, and if so, what are your thoughts? Uh, I've not heard of the book, but I yes, I'm familiar with the concept of bonding, that uh, trauma bonding, that when basically it, the name tells the story, that when you go through trauma with someone, you're bound it it because certain uh, feelings and get fired and thoughts and beliefs get formed, you bond to that person. And so many people say, well, I'm trauma bonded to this person. What do I do? How do I get out of it? And so on and so forth. And my response is. It's really the same in any situation that whether it's trauma bonding or whether it's getting past a uh, painful childhood or dealing with the loss of your business or whatever it might be, you have to go into the pain. I was a trauma counselor for a a U.S. airline, and so I would deal with employees, uh, whether it's in-cabin employees, pilots, or um, flight attendants, or... Uh, employees of, you know, the mechanic staff or in the administration, any staff, anytime there was any trauma that was experienced. Now in flight, it might be a wind shear or something along those lines that, or a smoke filled cabin or something. And so they come out of those flights shaken up. And it was my responsibility then to either be there when they came down and then take them through sort of decompression counseling or to reach back out to them, or if we had an employee who was going through a divorce, or if we had another employee whose father just died, it was my job to take them through the trauma counseling. One of the things that uh, the technique that I use and used and still use, um, whether as a clergy person or as that uh, trauma counselor for the airline and, and even now today, is it's we tell the story, we go into the story, tell the story, tell the story. What is the story? So that's taking them down into the story. Well, a lot of times, people don't want to go into the story of their lives. This is why they don't want to go into counseling. Why? I don't want to go into that shit. Well, why don't you want to go into this? Because I don't like how it feels. I don't like the memories. It makes me feel scared. It makes me feel alone. It makes me feel hungry. It makes me feel angry. It makes me feel rage. Whatever it might be. Well, I don't want to go into it. But you take them down into the story. You have to go into your story. If you want to heal from a trauma bond or anything else, you have to go into the very place you don't want to go. So you begin by going down into the story, and I would have them retell the story. Or if you're doing it on your own, do it in your own journaling. Write out everything you remember about the story, everything, everything, everything. And then the next step is, and what are you feeling? And everybody's like, oh, that's the stupid counseling question. Really, is it that fucking stupid? That's where the fucking healing is. Gee, I wonder why people ask that. Well, what what was I feeling when... Um, you know, when she left me and what was I feeling when she told me I'm no good or whatever the bond is, the trauma bond, whatever the trauma is, it's going into the story. Then it's going into the feelings. Then it's coming back out. Well, what was the story again? And telling the story again and then coming out. And we keep going back in story, down to the story, down to the feelings, back up to the story and out down to the story, into the feelings, back up to the story and out. We keep doing that. And by continuing doing it, giving it words, whether it's in words with your best friend or with your therapist or your clergy person or in words in your counseling or, excuse me, in your journaling or writing poetry or writing music, however you get your thoughts and feelings into words and not just talking into your fucking phone, right? But putting it down to be recorded so that you can go back and look at it and so forth and stay in those thoughts and feelings. The more you do that, the more you heal, whether it's a trauma bond or whether it's your fears of riding roller coasters or getting on a plane, anything. That's how we fucking heal. All right. Rob, what was that question you had?
0: Well, that's a personal question for you. Oh. And so um, I know how you don't like talking about yourself. but.
1: (laughs) (laughs) every person who ever knew me as a child would be laughing their ass off at that thought Sven, not liking talking about himself.
0: All right, but do do your best. Thanks for throwing me a bone. (laughs) Certainly. Uh, here's the question. What do you enjoy most about your career and what do you enjoy the least?
1: Uh, what I enjoy most about my career is that at a very young age in my twenties, I chose to invert Maslow's pyramid hierarchy of needs. I chose to invert it, and Maslow puts at the bottom uh, warmth, right? That is the core fundamental human need is warmth. Second is protection, security, right? And then food, water, shelter, and then, you know, fucking income, and then uh, work that fulfills you, and then family, connection, whatever the order is, all the way up to the top. What's at the top? Self-actualization. And I said, fuck that. And I believe that's the artist mentality. Yes, you still got to fucking eat, but... I ate a whole lot less when I was created. I didn't give a fuck. I just wanted to express myself. I wanted self-actualization. I saw something just this week on, uh, I think somebody had put it out on TikTok, and I haven't authenticated it to know whether or not the research is real and good and so forth, but they had done studies on people's energy. Now, for science to even be looking at personal energy, I think is a huge fucking leap forward, but looking at energy and which energy on like, energy-o-meters or whatever, measuring human energy, and the energy that comes through as the most powerful is the energy not of love, but the energy of authenticity, and that's why you guys hear me talk about authenticity and becoming your a real self, that I committed myself, so my greatest joy in my career is being my real self, and I committed to it at age 20, and people called me irresponsible, a woman left me over it. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of money for a very, very, very long time, 25 years, whatever. So the best part of my job is I write, I speak, and I counsel. And those are the three things I love to do the very most in life in service of humanity. That's my favorite shit to do. Anything else, even sports, you know, I grew up in sports, even that bores me after a while. I like movies, you know, and so forth, but I don't make a career out of it. No, I, I get to do the shit I love and I get to because I fucking chose it. And I was willing to do it even when I was poor. And now, in my mid-50s, when I'm not poor, it's great. But I'm still doing it because I love the fucking work. I'm, I'm on my fucking phone at 4 in the morning. My girlfriend's asleep next to me. The dogs are over there. My dog has been eating beef lately, so he's had really bad gas. So I've had to open the window because it's, oh, it's horrible. Um, but I'm still laying there at 4 in the morning. Um, and uh, a lot of times I'm going through emails that people send or somebody will reach out with a direct message. I get up about about 1,000 a week. And I try to really hit a lot of them. I can't possibly get them all. But I'm doing it at four in the morning when I wake up. I went to the bathroom, couldn't get back to sleep. And so I'm just laying there. I love this work. I'm not doing that because I'm getting paid. I ain't getting jack shit for that. Doing it because I love it. I love helping humanity in ways I love it. Uh, What do I not like about the work? Um the business aspect of it. I'm not a business person. When I left the Air Force Academy after two years, I got accepted to Cornell Ivy League School. they a school of hotel administration, a business school. And I knew even back then, I have no desire to go into business. I suck at it. It doesn't hold my interest. I had to cheat my way through my economics courses. You know, shit like, I was just like, fuck this. Um, ironically, I ended up, I've been in a relationship with a woman for 10 years who built an $80 million company, present primary shareholder since day one. Um, so... Weird. Uh, but just the business side of it, having to fucking set up this and that, it bleeds my energy. I like the creative aspect of it. Anyway, all right, people. What do we got? Where do you start to heal codependency? Where do you start to heal it? Exact same thing I was saying earlier about trauma bonding. It's really the exact same thing. You have to go into you wanna know actually, you know what? This is actually a great question. Do you want to know what you need to heal next? This goes for everybody, not just codependent, not just trauma bond, not just blah, blah, blah. Do you want to know where your healing is? You can always identify healing work that you have to do. Today, I discovered this morning I had to do some healing work. I was laying in bed and I realized it. I'm going to tell you that story in two seconds, short little story. You know where the healing, the next healing work is by what you're feeling. By what you feel next. Any charged up feeling you have, oh shit, good. I'm glad this person just pissed me off because I realized, okay, I got some healing I gotta do on that. Or I'm really feeling sad. I'm really feeling disappointed about that. Okay, boom, done. What a gift. That disappointment is a gift. That sadness is a gift because now I know I have one more thing inside of me that I can pull out and begin to look at and begin to uh, you know, extricate from running my own sense of self that I can heal on that. Anywhere in the full breadth of your life that you have feelings, that's a healing opportunity. That's where you start healing your codependency, your trauma, your fear, your breakup, your divorce, your uh, you know miserable parent, your miserable parenting, whatever it might be. That's where you start. Wherever you have the most powerful feelings, just start there. Where you have any, any feeling, even a little bitty one, heal that. Then heal another little one, and eventually you get in the fucking rhythm. And then you your soul starts sending up more things and more things that that can heal. Um, and that little story this morning was this realization where I realized I had some healing to do because I got hit by some guilt this morning. I was laying in bed uh, with my girlfriend. We're just talking. We start our day slow and we talk and we keep the dogs in their kennels, uh, the little ones at least. And before we let them out, we're talking. And for whatever, oh, it was it was middle of the night. It was like four in the morning. And she was up, was uncomfortable. And I was up and we're just laying there talking in the dark. And uh, I said, oh my God, I just had a memory. And she said, what's that? I said, well, it had to have been when I was younger than six because we were still living in Lake Park. We hadn't moved to Fridley yet, but I feel like it was more like around age four. And she says, what? I said, I would wake up in the middle of the night. It didn't happen a lot, but it did happen occasionally, as in more than once. But I remember one incident in particular. I woke up in the middle of the night and all six of us kids were in shared bedrooms upstairs and mom and dad were on the main floor. We lived in the parsonage. And I remember shouting down from, to mom, mom, make me a peanut butter jelly sandwich. <laughs> and then I went downstairs and I, mom must have said, we'll just lay on the couch. And I remember laying on the green sofa and it was sort of a jacquard or uh, some sort of heavy uh, woven. And uh, and I laid down. And then I remember waking up in the morning and the sandwich was there and there was a bite out of the sandwich. <laughs> I put my, I woke my, she has six kids. If I'm four years old, that means she's 43. She has six kids. They, dad's a pastor. They don't have a lot of money. And I put her through that of waking her up in the middle of her fucking precious rest, asked her to make me a sandwich. And then I come out and I probably fell asleep. I probably wasn't even, it probably wasn't even my bite. She probably took the bite because it's like that a little kid goes to sleep. So I'm having a bite of this, whatever. And I felt so much guilt. I mean, as a little kid. Obviously, I wasn't guilty. Obviously, I didn't commit a crime. But when we think back sometimes on things that we did that might have hurt another person's feelings or in this case, not hurt feelings, but robbed them of a little bit of life. And so that was a bit of healing I had to do this morning. I had to allow those feelings up, the feelings of guilt and the feelings of raw love that that engendered for me for my mom, who I do love. She's passed away, but... um, and so I brought those up and I allowed myself to feeling and feel them and journal about them and use the Sedona method on it, which is something I talk about in my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. So we're constantly being pushed. We are just constantly being given, shown scenes in our life by what we feel, areas where we can heal some more. And every bit of that that you get out of that is a bit, you become a bit lighter. You become, You experience more relief because you're getting pains and old wounds and stuff, stuff you didn't even know was back there. I discovered one this morning, and I've been doing this healing shit since I was fucking 19. I'm 56. That's almost 40 years, and I'm still finding shit. So it's never done. But what an opportunity to be a little bit freer, a little bit lighter, a little bit happier, a little bit more relieved. All right, next question. Had to go no contact with the entire family due to narc, narcissist, sister-in-law. People will never understand why or how. Ah, and that's the problem, Rocky. okay. You're basically saying you by saying uh, I had to go no contact with the entire family due to the narcissist sister-in-law. People will never understand why or how. Yeah, and you wouldn't even put that up there unless them not understanding why or how was painful for you. Why would why would that even be an issue? Okay, so so they don't understand. Big fucking deal. Well, it obviously is a big fucking deal because you're putting it on a public post here. And I applaud you for doing it. That's good. You're wrestling with it. You don't like the fact that people don't understand why or how you did it. You don't like the fact that you're eating shit right now. You're coming under fire from family, the entire family, because you protected yourself. They're likely heaping the you know the usual old shit from family. Well, we're family, and we, you still you got to forgive. You got to get over it, or it's not that big a deal. And they're pressuring their agenda onto you, and it doesn't feel good and it sucks it sucks when there isn't that understanding when there isn't that compassion when there isn't that desire to learn and understand and to encourage you to live your life your way even if that means distancing yourself from us yeah you're you are a person on an island Rocky, on one hand, and you've lost the very people that you thought you would have with you forever. So this is what I talk about in my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. I talk about the more you have the courage to be, say, do, and become who you really are, to put your authentic self out there. Three things are going to happen. One, you're going to start to lose people, many of whom you thought would be with you forever, okay? You're going to, whether it's because they walk away from you or as you say in this particular question here, Rocky, you walked away from them. There are going to be people who don't want you to be your authentic self, that you're be, say, doing and becoming, that you're putting out there on the outside who you really are on the inside. They're going to be people who don't want it. They want you to go back to who you've always been. They're married to the idea of what or who you've always been. The second thing that happens is you begin to effortlessly attract people, not because of the law of attraction or some shit like that, just that you're a new person and you're gonna bump into people. And they're gonna be people who really like who you've become. There are gonna be people who would be like, if you went back to being who you always were, I wouldn't be the least interested. I love who you are. Or people who say, I don't even, I love that you don't even know who you're becoming. I just love that you have the courage to become. And then the third thing that happens, and this is where everybody calls bullshit, right? Until they actually do the work. Um, and that is that magical shit starts to fall out of the sky. Shit you weren't even expecting. The number of stories, thousands of stories, I could give you over the last thirty years, where the courage somebody had the courage to be, say, do, and become on the outside who they really were on the inside, to finally become authentic. Everything begins to change, and call it manna from heaven, blessings. Call it just unexpected, a fucking whatever. Amazing shit starts to happen. One example from my own life. As I became more and more and more authentic in the last 10 years alone, no lie, in the last 10 years alone, and I have done literally nothing to precipitate this in the last 10 years alone, Rob can confirm this. I have been approached nine different times by TV shows to either host their TV show or they wanted to create TV show around me and my work. And as Rob can tell us, because he was a senior executive in the TV and movie industry, Uh, You know, getting a show on air is needle in a haystack, but multiple times I, well, every single time, except one, I had a contract. We pilots got filmed all this stuff. I did nothing to do that. I really don't give two fucks if I'm ever on TV, but all this happened. Rob, did you want to say something? I can
0: confirm it. That's all, Sven. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it didn't feel right to you. And therefore you didn't do it.
1: Right. Right. I mean, I went through and and took it as long as it went in the case where it felt right. In the case where it didn't feel right, I didn't sign the contract. But my point is these opportunities were falling out of the sky. Why? I was just being me. I was just putting my authentic self out into the world and shit just starts falling out of the sky. That's the point. Be, say, do, and become who you really are. And in your case, the person who asked this question, you've had to go no contact with your entire family. They're pissed, and they want you to go back to being who you are and who you were, and I say don't do it. Just be you and accept the losses. You win some, you lose some. More to come, but right now, let's take a quick break. I'll be right back. Okay, well, you've, you've heard the podcast. You've listened to other people's issues. Maybe you've studied hundreds of Sven's TikTok videos. Time to stop lurking. Face your fears. And focus directly on the one person in your life who can benefit the most from Sven's experience and insight. Now that would be you. Just go to badasscounseling.com and order Sven's book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. Or check out his many video courses. Sven found a way to help himself out of a 12-year depression. It worked for him. And it can work for you too. Check out badasscounseling.com today.
0: This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass.
1: And we are back with a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. I'm in studio with uh, Casey in the booth and Rob the Rocket next to me. Uh, we are taking listener questions and I have one right here over on TikTok. Noah, in all capital letters, says, every time I join, someone takes a break. I Evidently, Noah just joined right before that commercial break. Um, and Noah is very angry about it, uh, although he has a little laughing face there. But then he says this, God has commitment issues with me for real. And now, he doesn't put a smiley face after that one or a crying face or anything else. So he means it, all right? Because he had just put a... Uh, that other face on the previous statement. So God has commitment issues with me. Now, as you guys know, I used to be a pastor, and you know I can wade into spiritual conversations and so on and so forth. And I just want to touch this one. I want to touch this uh, because so many of my clients come to me, um, and I have atheists, Hindu, African Christians, Jews, uh, agnostics, uh, Muslims, and so I've had all sorts of clients over the years and uh, can speak those different languages, so to speak. And in this case, one of the issues for people who do believe in God uh, or believe in gods, one of the issues is when my heart is crying out for something and God is not granting it. Or when I'm wanting something and I'm not getting it, or I feel like my prayers are going unanswered. And so Noah here says, God has commitment issues with me for real, uh, which I take to mean, and again, I'm just playing the ball as it lies, which I take to mean I feel like God's not listening, or I'm still in my pain, or I'm still in my suffering, or I'm not getting what I want. And one of the things that I tell people is uh, there's a standard sermon that gets preached in uh, Christian churches, and it's on the notion of kairos versus kronos. I mean, uh kronos is linear time, the time on your watch, right? Kairos is what's referred to as God's time, okay? And, you know, the standard preacher preaching that is, you know, we want things on linear time, we want things on our time, but you got to get on to God's time, is the how the standard um, standard sermon goes. But I preached that one differently back when I used to preach, and I preached that because the, the inherent longing, as Noah is indicating here, is that I'm wanting something from God, or I'm wanting to feel God's presence, or I'm wanting an answer to this problem, or I'm wanting love, or I'm wanting and God's not providing, whatever it might be, communication, warmth, get me out of this horrible situation, whatever it may be, and God's not uh, giving me what I want. And so the standard Kairos sermon is, well, you got to get on God's time. And on one hand, it's true. I'm not disputing that. But that's not really how I look at it. I look at it this way. you know. It's, it's this notion that I'm talking, God's not listening. <laughs> Damn it, God, why don't you just listen to me and do what I say, right? Okay. Um, and I look at it this way. See, I believe God is always talking. For those who do believe in God or the gods or those who believe in the universe or those that believe just in soul, your soul is always talking. God is always talking. God is always giving you the next gift or the next nudge or the next pull in a new direction or showing you what you need to do next. It's just that you want God to talk about what's going on, going on over here in this path. The question you have over here in this arena, and God's talking over here and saying, just address all this shit over here that I'm telling you. But God, I really want you to talk about this and tell me what I should do over here. And God's like, but I really want you to do this over here. And I want it so much. And I want to further your life along that until you do that, I'm not going to give you this over here. So the point is God's always talking. The question is, are you listening? The question is, are you acting in the areas where you do feel called to act, even if they seem insignificant or even if they don't answer the questions you want to answer right now? I want this question answered. And you're pouting and stomping your feet and slamming doors to God. God's always talking. Your soul is always talking. There are always new paths, always. There's always something, even if it's just fixing or cleaning up this other thing, or it's not always the grand new path or vision for my life. Your soul is always talking. Are you listening? And do you have the courage to follow it, even if it's not what you want an answer on? Well, I just want love. I just want lover. I just want a new career to come across my path. Yeah, but what about those other pulls inside of you that may seem smaller or may seem insignificant, but they're still pulling you from within? Are you heeding those? Because it has it occurred to you that this one may later lead to or somehow correlate or weave with the one you do want, but that comes later? Yeah, but I want this now. Yeah, but tough shit. You're being called here. Follow the calling of your soul or your God, as it were. All right, next question. And this must be a video game reference. Forgive me for anyone who knows video games and I don't know the video game references, but I was in fifth fucking grade when Mr. Bozeski brought Pong in when it had just come out. So I was there before you you were. So go wipe your little snot nose before you put me down for not knowing all video references. And I'm saying that playfully. Stinky says, you need to do the side quests to truly complete the game. I like that. I like that got to be a video game reference, right, Rob? Yeah. You got to do the side quests. That's right. If your soul is calling you to these side quests, it's part of the game. You may not see how it's part of the game. God, that's a great fucking line. I love that. You may not see how it's part of the game, but it's part of the game. Now get in there and go in the areas you do feel called, even if it's not the big whopper one that you want. All right. All right. Next question is, how do I get over the anger from 25 years with a narc X? Narc X? I was going to say narcissist X, but then okay. How do I get over the anger from 25 years with a narc X? Um, really, the fact that it's narc X in the end isn't the point. The point is you've got anger. That's the point. It could be from a you know a, an abusive parent. It could be from a a boss who was you know whatever. You've got anger, and you want to know how you get over it as you guys heard me say, you get over something by going into it, all right? You got to go into the anger. Well, what does that mean? That means either with your therapist or on your own, in your journaling, right? Or writing letters to your narcissist ex that you do not send. You start flushing it all out and start with just the smallest thing or start with the biggest thing. What are you most angry about? And then while you're journaling it out, and, and I strongly recommend journaling to anyone, even if you're in counseling. Why? Because one hour a week, if you got a therapist that does the one hour thing or the 50 minutes thing or the 45 minutes thing, you're not going to get everything accomplished in that amount of time. It'll take you fucking decades, if that. What you need to be doing in your off time is fucking journaling and writing letters you don't send. In other words, you got to do the homework. It's not just, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to learn everything. All right, so you go into that anger. What am I most angry about at my ex today? And, what, oh, and then there was that time, and then there was this and that. Basically, what you have... With any anger or sadness or any feeling is you have a memory. You have memory on top of memory, on top of this memory, that memory, that memory. And all of these memories have emotional charges attached to them. Like electrons circling around uh, uh, um, a nucleus of an atom. It has a charge. And all of those, I'm going to mix the fuck out of these metaphors. All of those charged memories are stuck in your love cup. So when something new drops in, some new stimulus... Negative drops in, it electrifies all of those electrons, all of those emotional charges attached to those memories. So, what you have to do, and this may sound tedious, but folks, this is the price of healing. And there are ways to accelerate the process. But what you have to do is you have to begin to go in and pull up those memories one by one. You can start small, then go big. You can go start big, then go small and medium, whatever. But you got to go in, pull up that memory down into the story. All right, writing out the story, writing out the story, writing out the memory, then down into the feelings, the emotional charge, writing out, well, what was I feeling? Well, why was I feeling that? And then really where the gold happens is, but why did that make me angry when my narcissist ex said blah, 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 or did this? Because, and now we're going even deeper, because it hurt my feelings. Because I felt like he was saying to me, you're a piece of shit or your needs don't matter. So now we're not just going down in the anger. Flushing out anger isn't just about flushing out anger. It's about flushing out the pain that the anger is a response to. That's where the healing comes from. That's what you have to go down into in your counseling or your work with uh, you know yourself or again, some of the other tools that I talk about in my book, there's a hole in my love cup. You have to use these tools. You have to go into it and the more you flush and flush and flush and flush and flush, the lighter you will become. I guarantee it. It's just fact. You will feel more and more relief inside of you and you will have one of the greatest gifts that uh, humanity or... Um, Being alive offers, and it's the gift of clarity. It's right up there with peace, purpose, uh, power. It's the gift of clarity, clarity of who you are, clarity of being able to just see life differently because it's not clouded by all the shit that's been stuffed down in there. All right, next question. Oh, (laughs) great question. I love this question. Kathy over on Facebook asked the question, She's referring to what I just talked about, about writing letters that you don't send and doing the journaling and, and so forth. And she asked the question, why not send it? <laughs> that a totally legit question. It's a great question. I'm giggling because I did send those letters. All those letters after the, my uh, first divorce 30 years ago, almost 30 years. Yeah, 30 years, it's almost 30 years ago. And I sent them letter after letter, oh, I love you and I this and I that, but I'm so angry at you. And that, that all of my feelings poured it out. And it it led to the protraction of the relationship and her the I felt embarrassed at times that I had written it, or she would make me feel embarrassed, or she'd hurt my feelings, or I'd I'd lash out when she wasn't responding to the letter the way I wanted. And so it's gonna create feelings of anger and embarrassment and more sadness and so on and so forth, but that's not really it. The real reason you don't send the letter. You, can, you want to send the letter, send the letter. I, in the end, I don't give a fuck. It's your life, live it your way. But you're asking me the question, why not send it, honestly? Because the purpose of the letter writing is the same as the purpose of the journaling. It's not that anyone needs to read it. Even myself, I burn my journals now or I shred them or I flush them down the toilet when I uh, journal at the gym or whatever. It's not that someone has to read it or hear your message. It's that you need to say it. So it doesn't need to be sent. Furthermore, if you know you're sending a letter to your father that you're angry at or to your ex-lover, don't tell me you're not gonna edit that fucking letter. You're not gonna say, you are such a fucking dick. Ah, God, I can't stand, I wanna fucking, blah. And you make me so mad and you've hurt me. God, you're such an asshole sometimes. You're not gonna say that. No, you're gonna say, Um, you sort of hurt my feelings that one time, uh, no, you're going to temper it. What will they listen to? Will they stop reading after, if I say that in the first two sentences? So now all of a sudden you're editing, you're editing the message because you're basically carving it into something that they will swallow. That's not going to heal you. What's going to heal you is getting your shit out in the most powerful language possible, in the most powerful thoughts possible, going into every single thing that's hurting you. That's what's going to bring the healing. Once you start editing, you are short-circuiting your healing process. Next question.
0: Sven, there's one here, and it's very specific on a topic that uh, you've covered, and you cover a lot. But uh, this uh, listener says, What's the first thing I should do to better myself after getting out of a five-year NARC relationship? It's been four months. I'm ready now.
1: Well, my question is, you're ready now for what? Right. Right. Um, are you saying you're ready for a new relationship after a five-year narc relationship? Probably not, okay? Um, what's the first thing you should do in all honesty? If you want me to just be totally honest with you, all right? If you were my client, what I would want to explore is what were the beliefs that set you up going into the relationship with a narcissist? It's not what ha- what I call an extreme taker. It's not what happened in the relationship. That's not where the greatest damage was done, the greatest damage preceded that relationship, which is why I talk about in my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, I talk about all problems within a relationship predate that relationship. The origins, the belief systems, the fears, and the pains that set up the pains in the relationship predate that relationship before you ever even knew that fucking person, okay? And so in this case, what's the first order of business you should do coming out of a five-year uh, narcissist relationship? whatever the amount was, the first thing you should do is you should begin the process of exploring what were the, I'd, I'd start you right here. I'd say, what were the red flags that you missed? I guarantee there were red flags. I guarantee in the beginning of your relationship, and you could I could start you a million different places, but we'll just choose this one. I guarantee you that if I were to ask you what red flags did you miss, if there were any, you'd be able to say, well, there was that time. Or maybe you'd start up saying, I don't know, there weren't any red flags. And I'd say, Really? there was never something that didn't feel good or didn't feel right. Or it made you think, uh, wait, what? There weren't times in the beginning. And if I push you, I guarantee there were, I guarantee there were things. And I'm not saying necessarily the first month, maybe it was your third year, but there was a time when things began to not feel good. I mean, if, if you went through a five-year relationship at some point, maybe it didn't come until you're four and a half, but at some point, You got out of the relationship because it didn't feel good. So I just want to know when did the relationship start not feeling good? When did it start? For some people, it doesn't start until we had somebody we were counseling on the show earlier today. And uh, it started uh, for his wife basically right before the wedding because he checked out of the relationship right before the wedding because he was terrified. So her discontent, her not feeling good started right before the wedding. So when did this relation start to not feel good to you? Okay, well, how does that help us, then? Because right there we can start with, well, why the fuck didn't you do anything about it? Not that I'm saying that scoldingly or blamingly. Blame is, it is not helpful. It's to identify what was going on inside of me when someone is treating me in a way that doesn't feel good. What was going on inside of me that caused me to overlook that? Or maybe I did bring it up, and they sort of shot it down, so I let it go. In some way, you let it go. Or maybe the first time, you didn't let it go, and and they account, and you made them atone for it. But maybe then, by the third time, they did it. Or maybe another time, they did something else. At some point, you're being treated in a way that doesn't feel good, and you allowed it. Otherwise, it would have never metastasized. It did not start as this giant metastatic cancer. You did not start this relationship with a huge fucking growth in the relationship that felt horrible. It didn't start that way. It starts small. And it may not start at the beginning. It may start three years in, but at some point it starts. And the problem is, is that I allowed it. So in my counseling of you, I would ask you, when did you allow, what was the event and why did you allow it? Or what was going on? Likely, if it happens once and then you allow it, it's gonna happen again in all likelihood, still small, and then it's gonna become patternized. And then it's growing. And then it's going to grow in another way. Well, he never really apologized in the beginning and I kind of let it go because he was a nice guy and I didn't want to lose him or I'd never had a woman like me before or whatever it might be and you let it go. Then it goes a little more and now you can see the cancer growing. So the way we fix it so that it doesn't happen again is we go into the origins. Okay, so if I was allowing this, why was I allowing this? What was the fear driving my behavior? Because there was some fucking fear. I didn't want to lose the person. Uh, I couldn't bear the thought of being alone again. Um, My mom would have chewed me out and said, see, you're unlovable. Look at that. He left you again. Or another guy left you. Whatever it is, there were fears operating. Or you just didn't even see it, which is its own separate thing. Well, why didn't you see it? Well, because that's just how people treated each other in our home. Ah, so now we got to go back into that childhood again because we're realizing that how you were conditioned to believe about love was driving your relationship. And if you haven't done anything about it since the beginning of your last relationship, that means you're still not seeing how what you were taught in your childhood is driving how you go about love. So it's always going into really the origins of the relationship. And this is why great relationships are won and lost in the beginning. They, can they, uh, ones that go bad, can they be re- resurrected later? Sure, Sure, but it gets harder and harder the bigger that cancer grows. All right, next question. 13-year marriage, then a seven-year relationship. I've finally done the work to figure out my patterns. I love that. There's no question in there. It's just, that's nice. I like that. All right. Um, why do people always refer to their significant other as a narcissist? Everyone has narcissistic traits, overused term. Tammy, I can't say I disagree. However... Just as my own little soapbox here, let's all remember that uh, psychology does not, did not coin that term, right? I studied the classics, I've studied five languages, four of them mostly dead, largely dead, and two of them were two different versions of Greek. And we know that Ovid, the great poet, about 2,000, 3,000 years ago, wrote and wrote the story of uh, Narcissus and Echo, right? And what's interesting is it wasn't just a cute story, that those stories were archetypes, okay? To quote Hillman, to quote Joseph Campbell, they were archetypes explaining types of humans. So Ovid was already engaging in sort of a psychology, 2,500 years before psychology was ever invented in the 1800s, whatever, okay? And he was basically saying there are personality types that are so fucking self-absorbed that it's all about them, and there are those persons. The most, and if you've never read this before, just fucking Google it. Pull up the wiki version. That's fine. Um, the story of Narcissus and Echo. Not just Narcissus. The most interesting part of that story is Echo. Echo is a mountain nymph that is cursed by the gods that she loses her voice, and all she has the ability to do is echo whatever is said to her. Hence, we get the idea of an echo. You go in the mountains and you go to yodel hee hoo and then the mountains say back to you, yodel hee hoo right? Echo, we all know what an echo is. Or an echo chamber when you just surround yourself with people who just repeat back what you say and make you feel darn good, right? We talk about politicians that way or whatever. Uh, But echo lost her voice. And Echo met Narcissus and fell in love because Narcissus was so beautiful. And the more and more she would just echo what he said. Well, of course, Narcissus was saying, I'm so beautiful. Look at me. And I'm so important. And she would say, you're so important. She'd say, uh, you're so beautiful. Just look at you. Is this starting to sound familiar to anyone? Do you see yourself in your life as Narcissus or Echo? And eventually Echo died because her needs were never met, because the love was never never reciprocated, that she was only loved by Narcissus, and uh, she, she was only given love when she was repeating back about him. In other words, it was all about him. And eventually, she never got love, because Narcissus could only love himself. And eventually, Echo faded away and died, as Echoes do. Do you see yourself in Echo? Huh. Oh. Now, if you see yourself a narcissist and you actually do something about that, God bless you. You're a few and far between and I'd love to work with you because if we can change one uh narcissist narcissist or narcissist or as I call them extreme takers, we can change one at a time, that's a victory for fucking humanity. All right. So why do people always refer to their significant others as narcissists? At the very least, it gives people a language in which to frame the experience they're having. So while it is overused and trauma bonding and bomb, you know, love bombing and all these other phrases are so overused nowadays. The good part about it is it's given them people a frame of reference, a language to express what they're experiencing. So for that alone, uh, it can be a good thing. Rob? Change one narcissist, change the world. Amen. All right. And I got a good one here
0: uh, from uh, YouTube, if you'd like. Lay it on me, Moo Please share your feelings on expectations. If I expect something, isn't it a setup for a letdown? Not expecting anything prevents possible letdowns.
1: Oh, boy. This is exactly what we talked about in our uh, session. We what? What's the date of that... Uh, counseling episode we just taped this morning with Michael. Was it about November? Yeah. Michael's episode
0: will be on November
1: 2nd as a podcast. Right. What One of Michael's issues was that he uh, doesn't like to get his feelings, doesn't like to have hopes or expectations because what he fears, and we only came to this point later in the show, what he fears is that Why get my hopes up? Because I'm not going to get it anyway, and then that'll break my heart. So it's better to not have hopes or expectations at all. And as we dove into uh, uh, Michael's past, what we discovered was right around age 10, he recognized a pattern, and the pattern that he recognized was at Christmas and birthdays, that his parents would always ask him for his wish list for his birthday or for for Christmas, and every single time, it was not what he wanted. And I and he he acknowledged, he said, Sven, I knew my parents didn't have a lot of money. And I took that into consideration. I said, so your, your wish list was in the ballpark. It was finance appropriate. And he said, yeah, definitely. But they never, never did it. I'd get, you know, and then it's not that all the gifts were crap, but I'd get some medium ones or so-so ones. But I just, I just was constantly disappointed. And so I stopped getting my hopes up. So I'd put out a wish list, but it was never the stuff I really wanted. Okay, right there. I'd put out the wish list, but it wasn't what I really wanted. Okay, that's where it happened, right there at 10. He began to separate, to take a step back from the process because the process was painful, that if I put my real heart out there, I'm just going to get disappointed. And what we discovered, he had told me in the, in the, us, my producers, in the paragraph that he sent in to production at badasscounseling.com, desiring to be on the show, what he said was, I'm trying to, I'm struggling to feel love. I was in a marriage, didn't turn out well. I dated someone, I broke up. I just don't, I want to be able to feel, specifically, I want to be able to feel good feelings. Specifically, more, I want to be able to feel love. And we tracked it back that he stopped engaging from uh, putting himself out there in christmas lists. And really everything, and he just started being a good boy and doing what's expected of him because if he did what he wanted or put out what he felt, he was invariably disappointed. Plus, he had a father that said, you know, don't trust anyone ever because they'll always disappoint you. So can you see in this we see a direct correlation? It's not just the father's messaging and the father's own career. He father was always lamenting, "Oh, I tried this and it didn't and didn't go through, and I had this and it was taken from me." Always lamenting it. So he's getting this messaging from father. Mother is allowing it, but also he's experiencing it himself at Christmas and 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 um, birthdays. Then when he puts his nuts out there when he expresses what he really wants, when he shows, and that's called showing vulnerability. It's being my authentic self. He got disappointed every time. So we could, that's a direct causal link between that and now his adult relationships. He doesn't even want to put himself out there because he knows he's going to be disappointed. And what it goes down even further to, we discovered, was that he was taught that he was unwantable. That he, in his home, fat was bad and he was fat shamed. And, you know, he, and he says, I go back and I look at my pictures now from high school and stuff. He says, I, that's crazy. I had, what, maybe a few extra pounds. I, and I was, you know, a handsome young kid. But the shit we're taught to believe about ourselves. So all of these, these things gel together. His own feeling of being unwantable, but also his own belief that you can't put expectations out there. You can't hope because it will break your heart. And so these are all driven by beliefs that he doesn't even, as we drill down deeper, he doesn't want to believe. And to, to a logically he doesn't even believe. He doesn't even believe he's unwantable anymore. And so all of this stuff gets packed in, and it drives the equation of our lives. So you ask the question, what do I do about expectations? And, and you know, the fear of basically getting hurt. You have to go into where those come from and what your fear is. Fear of getting hurt, and you've also, and you need to be doing this in your journaling or with your therapist or with your clergy person or your best friend or whoever you talk to. One of the questions you also have to look at is if that worst case scenario were to happen, so you're not a 10-year-old kid anymore, you're a 35-year-old person, or you're a 42 or 26, whatever it is, if that worst case scenario were to happen, where I put have that expectation, that hope for what I really want, and it doesn't happen. You need to be journaling out. Well, what would I feel? Well, I'd feel sad and I'd feel angry and I'd feel let down yet again. And da, 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 da. you need to be flushing out all that. As well as flushing out through your journaling and counseling, flushing out all the previous times when that happened. And then you have to a- ask the critical question. And this is the most important question. And the question is this if that worst case, and this this applies to overthinkers, this applies to people who are catastrophizers, as you game it out. In your head, and you think about, you know, you're always gaming everything out to its logical uh, ends or its illogical conclusion or whatever. You're always gaming it out. Why? You want to see what the level of pain is, right? No, I'm not going to do that. I've gamed it out in my head. No, wait. I'm not going to go after that, my biggest dream, because if it doesn't happen, blah, 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 or if I fail, da, 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 and that would hurt too bad and it would be too painful. We're gaming out our fear. So in this case, you game out. Okay, so I have my hopes, I have my expectations, and what if the person left me if I did open up? Or what if that particular hope fell through and it didn't happen? And this is the central question. If that worst-case scenario happened, would I be okay? That's the question of life. Because all great dreams, all great visions, all aspirations for your life, all ventures into love or parenting or anything else are all saddled with fears and anxieties, but they're all, you have an aspiration to go this direction, right? And when those fears creep in, it is very easy because those fears are so very fearful. I know what I want because that fear is so painful or the potential pain is so great. I go tick, 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 and I go 10 degrees off of that. Or I go tick, 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 I go you know, 98 degrees in a different direction. Or I go tick, 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 I go the exact opposite direction. Why? Because it's too scary that if those bad things were to happen, it would be too scary. I'd be too afraid and it would hurt so much. And so the question is, would I be okay? Even if the worst thing happens, even if I lose, or even if I get laughed at, or even if I fail, or even if I get rejected, will I be okay? Once you can answer yes to that question, I mean, yes, I'll still grieve. Yes, it'll be painful. Yes, I'll have to flush out all the shit. Yes, I'll have to recover. But will I be okay in the end? Well, yeah, I will. Boom, done. All of a sudden, that giant fear, all of a sudden is no longer this this over, unovercomeable thing. Not a word. Um, all of a sudden, that fear isn't going to run in my life. And it, that's why every major decision in life, every decision really, boils down to fear versus trust. And I'm not even talking about like trust in God or trust in anything. I'm just talking about trust that no matter what happens, I'll be okay. I'm a former pastor. I have counseled the dead and dying for many, 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 many years. I have a brother who was a hospice uh, um, social worker, worked with the dying, the dead, and their families for 30, 40 years, and he was extraordinarily good at it. And one of the things I have discovered in all my work in dealing with the dead, the dying, their families, and so forth, but especially those who have undergone, are dying or undergone it, they have fears, they have Longings, they have all sorts of stuff, but they also very often come to a place of, strange as it may sound, being okay with that. Accepting it, that I'm going to be okay. Well, on one hand, no, you're not. You're going to be dead. But it's in advance. I'm going to be okay because they're looking at it, because they're grieving it, because they're flushing it out. They reach a point where I'm going to be okay. Does Do they all reach? No. No. But for many, there is an acceptance and that I'll be okay. So if the grand monster of all monsters, death, Can be looked in the face and a person say, I'll be okay in the process of approaching death, in the dying, I'll be okay. Even if they have stage four cancer, even if they're in their final whatever, if they can be okay with that, then what is there in your life that you can't be okay with? And yes, I have even worked with people who have lost their children. And after the time we go through the work and so on and so forth, can you be okay with life again? Can you give yourself permission to be happy again? Can you find, you know, where the joy still is and live? And for those who do the work, the answer is a hearty yes. And scary, and there's a price. And the guilt and all that has to be dealt with as well. But yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to take one last question. Rob, if that's okay with you? Perfect. Perfectola. All right. Um How could have Echo saved herself? So I just recounted the story of Echo and Narcissus. In Echo's, uh, when Ovid wrote that story, Echo was cursed by the gods, goddesses, actually. I believe it was Hera, um, goddess of the hearth. I think it was Hera. No, that may not be right. Anyway, um, it's been decades. Um, her, Her fate was inexorable. She couldn't pray her way out of that. Her fate was granted by the gods. She couldn't. And that is sort of Ovid saying that so many people who are stuck as Echo are stuck. And of course, Narcissus too. Well, how does he die? He dies by falling into the pool, gazing at his own fucking reflection, right? And uh, drowns in his own love of himself. Echo couldn't save herself. And Ovid was basically saying the Echo can't save themselves. You're fucked. You've lost your voice. You are strictly a living response to someone else. And of course, now we know that's not true. And I know for a fact it's not true. I heal people all the fucking time who are the echoes. And the way the echo saves herself, Holly, which is a brilliant question, Holly, really brilliant question, is by all this shit I'm telling you guys, you gotta go into your fucking past. You gotta go into what turned you into an echo in the first place. The losing of your voice happened when you were a child. You were conditioned to believe things like you're not wanted, you're not wantable, You're no good. You're not worthy of love. Uh, You're not good enough. You don't matter. You're not important. And I deal with all this in my book. There's a hole in my love cup. I literally step you through this exact process. But fundamentally, what you have to kill is not the voice of the person you're echoing, but it's the voices of those you were con- who taught you who conditioned you to believe this about themselves, you never have to confront your living, breathing parent. You have to confront the parent or whoever raised you that conditioned you to believe that your voice doesn't matter, that your feelings, wants, needs, you don't matter. That's how Echo saves herself. And again, that's what the book is for. There's a hole in my love cup. Uh, it's an audiobook, ebook, and paperback at badasscounseling.com. The audiobook is only available at audio at. Uh, badasscounseling.com. Someone asks, uh, Roxas asks, how do I get you to be my therapist? Just go to badasscounseling.com, read the the counseling page. All right, so uh, here's a fun little one I'm just gonna do uh, at the end. Um, What is your morning routine, Donna asks. Um, That's actually a great question. I believe in routines. I believe in ritual. I believe in the power of ritual. Now, is all of my life ritualized? No, but all of the improvisation exists within a ritual framework. Even in jazz, you are working in a time. The framework is the time. You know, whether it's three, four, 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 although some great jazz, uh, there's that one great whatever jazz song where all the musicians are playing in four, four, and then saxophonist or whatever comes in and he's playing in 12, six or whatever. And it's just, but so there's a framework even for jazz, which is largely improvisation. There's a framework of okay, Jimmy over on the piano is going to take his solo first, and then John back on bass is going to have his solo. And this is generally okay. There's a framework. There's a ritual. There's a routine. Um, in my case, my morning routine is simply uh, wake up. I get on social media right away and I try to answer some people's questions if I have time before I engage my day. I try to see what people are struggling with and get a few bang out a few. I get a, probably a thousand a week. I can't possibly get to all of them. Uh, then I get out of bed. I go in and I shave uh, my head and my face and uh, then go get dressed. I take my big dog, uh, Gunner. We go outside. He goes out and goes uh, pee-pee-poo-poo uh, while I am making the coffee for my girlfriend, although usually I'm up well before her, so I'll maybe just set the coffee so that she can push the button and have it brew. And then if I am bringing it up, I'll bring up her coffee to her. I don't try not to drink coffee in the morning, except on workout days. If it's a workout day, then I, I I'm not bringing her coffee cause I'm up at four and I'll make my breakfast, go out and work out at the gym. Otherwise, uh, back when I was, whenever I'm writing, I'm at, uh, either in my own office or I'm at Starbucks or whatever coffee shop I'm writing at right when they open, whether it's four 30 or five and I'll write for sometimes three hours, sometimes as you know, 14 hours, three hours is a short day for me. Um, we just finished a book, badass wisdom. It's going to be out, uh, in the next month or two here. Um, but anyway, uh, but my one indulgence on days where I have a little bit of extra time and then I'll go into my counseling schedule for the day or if I'm taping with Rob or whatever it might be. But, uh, my one sort of bonus, I don't shower or bathe every day, but my one sort of gift to myself, I'm waking up and just feeling the need to feel, I like a hot bath and I will slide into a hot bath and it's just like few things more joyful for me than looking out the window and seeing the world out there in the forest and stuff that I tape all my videos in while I'm taking a bath. And uh, yeah, so that's part of my morning ritual. Well, fine humans, thank you for that question, by the way. That was very nice. This has been a good episode. I feel like we covered some really deep shit and some really uh, good shit. Rob, any thoughts on today? Well, I've got our daily
0: affirmation here from one of our listeners. Really? And the listener says, several decades of self-therapy here. Thank you, for books and great people on the
1: internet to help
0: me along the
1: way. Oh, that's lovely. I love that. That would be you. Well, no, that would be us. That would be us. All right. All right. Yeah. It's teamwork, baby. Listen, this has been great. We have uh, really covered a lot of ground today. Thank you for your questions. It's your questions from your own experiences that enable me To, uh, you know, pull it apart and help you see what's going on and find words for your experience. In the words of the great writer who wrote, uh, you know, Tales of Narnia and Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and movies got made from C.S. Lewis, uh, Britt, he wrote, we read to know that we are not alone we engage in these podcasts we go on these lives we go online trying to find words for our experience a to know we're not alone but also to find a way out of the dark forest so if we have helped you in any way whatsoever we are grateful that you have uh, brought us the questions and it's just fun to uh, be here to serve you in whatever large or small ways we can so on behalf of rob the rocket casey in the booth i am sven erlinson thank you for tuning in and have a kick-ass day
0: The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of The Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.